let's dive into the study of God's Word. Grab your Bibles if you got them. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And let me uh, pray for us as we, as we dive in. Heavenly Father, we do, we do uh, take this time uh, seriously, and we approach your word, and we approach your presence with uh, humility, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak. And God, we do pray for truth and nothing but truth to uh, be conveyed here this morning. If there's anything that is false or anything that needs to be clarified, God, I pray that, again, this would be a place where we can correct one another and we can sharpen one another. I pray, Spirit, that you would move in a mighty, mighty, mighty way this morning as we open your word. Please, Father, uh, build us, edify us, encourage us, sharpen us, uh, convict us, rebuke us if necessary, Lord. But please, show us who you are through your word. Um, Spirit, be here, and, 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 and we ask, this, Lord, that you would, again, move in each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So um, last week we began our verse-by-verse uh, study of the Gospel of John. So we, what we did is we covered John 1, 1, and 2. Okay, this is what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3 continues on with that same theme. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So here's what we said last week. Okay, John is writing a biography of Jesus, right? But he's not writing the story of Jesus in the way that you and I might today, where you would kind of, there's this kind of progression, and you're kind of trying to keep people in suspense, where this, over time, you know, you build suspense, and little by little, you begin to reveal the majesty and the person of Jesus. And then right at the very end of the story, you just throw open the curtain, like, here's who Jesus is. This is him. You know, right from the very first sentence, he won't even let a sentence go by without declaring the identity of Jesus. Right from the very get-go, he says, Jesus is God. Very clear. Jesus is God. He didn't have a beginning. Anything that has been created, anything that had a beginning, found its beginning through Jesus, is what he says. Jesus is God. And he does that in a very unique and a brilliant way. Um, John looked at the two primary readers of his book, we said, to the two primary readers, the Hebrews and the Greeks. And the Hebrews and the Greeks, they had a very different cultures and philosophies. And he looked at the building blocks of their very different cultures, and he was able to find a common ground between the two of them. And although the Hebrews and the Greeks were coming at this, this common ground from different angles, this, this actually a, a, a phrase, a concept. They came at this from two very different ways. John, in this brilliant way, is able to take this one concept and point them both to Jesus. Even though they're coming at it from different angles, it points them both to Jesus. John uses the term, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. For the Hebrews, what we said was this. The Word was everything. The Word of God was everything. It was the Word the words of God that bound them to God in the first place, right? It was through the word of God that a covenant was made with Israel. It was the words of God, uh, you know, that was given by God to their prophets that they then, you know, this divine revelation that they wrote down in the scriptures. It was the words of God that showed them God's will. It was the words of God that showed them how to live and how to approach God. The Hebrews believed that the word of God not only set them apart, right, as a covenant people, and set them, you know, and, and taught them how to approach God and how to live, but it also had active and creative power. Genesis tells us it was through the word that creation was established. Remember, it says, and God said, let there be light, 
and boom, there's light. God said, let there be light, and boom, there's light. The word had creative power. And so what John, I don't have time to go into this, but if you look at John 1 and you look at Genesis 1, actually the first couple chapters of John, first couple chapters of Genesis, John, John is really deliberate about the language that he uses and the wording that he uses. And he, he says very clearly, the word was responsible for the, the old creation. The word is responsible for the new creation. It's really fascinating if you start, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. You, you start to look at the parallels. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. But what he's saying is, the word has creative, active power. The word is responsible for the new creation. What or who is the word? Jesus, Right. Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate self-expression of God. God expresses himself finally through Jesus. We are set apart through Jesus. We find life and the ability to live well in Jesus. Hebrews, if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us that it was through Jesus, again, that God brought the Genesis creation. Remember, it says anything that, well, look at Hebrews 1 verse 2. You can read that, that that God created the world through Jesus. And again, John's telling us it's through Jesus that the new creation is ushered in again. That's the Hebrew angle to the concept of the word, in a, in a nutshell. Then we said that, the, but the Greeks too, they had a concept of the word. Remember, John wrote this book in Greek, and the Greek word is logos, L-O-G-O-S, logos. Logos was the concept or the deity or the essence that was said to be behind all of life. Uh, the logos in, the, in Greek thought was this elusive thing or, you know, um, kind of essence or power in, 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 that was said to give an answer to the questions of origin, to meaning, to morality, and to destiny. The, the, the logos was the answer to the questions of origin, morality, meaning, and destiny. So by John using the word logos in the very first sentence of this book, what he's saying, your questions about origin, meaning, morality, destiny, all of their, answer, or all of, all of their questions find their answer in the person of Jesus. The answer to every philosopher, every theologian, every religion, every perspective, every philosophy, every desire in the whole of the history of mankind came, comes down to one person, and his name is Jesus. That's what he's saying. Jam-packed first couple of sentences. Uh, we covered a whole lot last week. Um, from the first two or three sentences of his book, John just explodes with these category-shattering declarations about the identity of Jesus. And from here, from this point on, John's just going to continue laying out who Jesus is and what he came to do. The first 18 verses of John chapter 1, to be honest with you, are probably going to take us a little while to get through. Um, that's the prologue to uh, the book of John. And uh, the themes, if you're going to look at the next 21 chapters of the, of the, the Gospel of John, they're not going to talk about any anything. They're not going to lay out any new themes that aren't first encapsulated in these first 18 verses. He kind of sums up everything he's about to talk about in, in greater detail and illustrate it through the life and ministry of Jesus in these first 18 verses. Um, when I started studying for this morning, uh, early this week, I thought, okay, I can cover about you know, the next 11 or 12 verses or so. And then I thought, okay, started studying. Okay, I, I think I can get about the next five or six verses or so. And then Friday, I thought, okay, I can cover two verses. That's what we're looking at today. We're looking at two verses. That's how jam-packed this is. So let's go. Verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. First John says again, in him was life. Um, 
John is not just talking about physical life here. He's not just talking about Jesus being, you know, little baby Jesus being born in a, in a manger, okay? He's not just talking about physical human life. He's talking about true, eternal, real, spiritual life. There is so much wrapped up in those four little words, in him was life. I've been trying to wrap my head around this, uh, those four words much of this week. I'm still just slowly being, my eyes are still slowly being opened to what that means. Um, But what John is saying here and what John is, or what Jesus is going to say all throughout his ministry in his own words is that he just doesn't possess life. He doesn't just have life. Like, like you and I, we have life. Jesus is going to say, I am life. And there's a, there's a big difference here. Let me try to explain. He says, I am life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Jesus doesn't just have life or give life, although he does that, right? He doesn't just possess life and distribute life. He says, I am life itself. I am life. In another place, John writes, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So what was the, the life which was with the Father and made manifest to us? What is that? That's Jesus. The, the answers will always be Jesus. Okay, so if, if I ever ask a question, just say Jesus. If you're not paying attention, Jesus. We've talked about this so many times. But this is one of the things that make Jesus, makes Jesus so unique in his ministry. Jesus didn't show up saying, I will show you how to attain life. I will show you how to get life. He said, I, I am life. He didn't just say, I will show you the way. He said, I, I am the way. I'm, not gonna say, I'm just here to teach you the truth. I am the truth, is what he said. When Jesus was with the Pharisees on the Sabbath, he didn't instruct them on how to find rest, did he? He said, I'm rest. I am rest itself. The Sabbath is pointing to me. He isn't just somebody who has power. He is power itself. And again, on, on the outside, that looks a little bit like semantics. Like, okay, what's your point? I mean, that's, that's a little, you know, just some wordplay here. But it's not. This is really important to get. Because if we don't understand this, then what might happen is we might begin to exalt a miracle or a word or a gift or a deed of Jesus more than Jesus himself. Does that make sense? We might begin to pursue and exalt something that Jesus did or said rather than Jesus himself. So we say, well, okay, well, Jesus has power, and I want that power. Then I run after power. But Jesus is power. You run after Jesus. You understand, you understand the difference? Jesus said, you know, if you said, that's, that's the way to life, you're running after life. You run after Jesus. Jesus is life. Jesus warned the Pharisees about that. He said, he said you study those scriptures diligently, but you are missing out on life because you don't understand. Those, those scriptures are all pointing you to me. The scriptures are a gift to us, but only in as much as they draw our hearts and our minds to Jesus. Jesus has given us a lot of great gifts, but if those things become an end in and of themselves and they don't draw our hearts to Jesus, they're idols and they'll destroy you. I don't, the, the gifts that he gives us, whether it's you know, tongues, prophecy, all those kind of things, whether it's, uh, if they don't point you to Jesus, they're just going to destroy you. They're just going to lead you astray. It's got to keep pointing us back to God. Um, Jesus is the word. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. In him is life, is what John said. In him is life. He's not pointing to something outside of himself that we need. He points us to himself. One of my favorite examples of this comes out of the Gospel of Mark. Um, 
we're familiar with the story. One day Jesus is out with his disciples and they get into a boat. He and all of his disciples, they get into a boat and they set out on the water. And Jesus gets comfortable. He goes down into the stern. He lays down. Uh, the boat's rocking. He gets lulled off into a sleep. He falls asleep. Meanwhile, a storm starts to rage on the outside. and The, the, the boat's being shaken. Look what happens. Mark chapter 4 verse 37. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see what happens. Uh, storm is raging. Jesus is asleep. Disciples wake him. Jesus rolls out of bed, sleep in his eyes, stumbles up to the, uh, the, the top of the ship, whatever, and, and uh, rebukes, the na- rebukes nature itself. Rebukes nature. Uh, his attitude towards nature is like I have towards my boy when he's bothering his sister. And I'm like, Israel, knock it off. Okay, that's how Jesus approached nature. He gets up there, he looks at the wind, and he looks at the crashing waves, and he says, quiet, knock it off, peace, be still. And immediately, on the spot, like a compliant child, there is dead calm. Dead calm. It's not like the wind just kind of starts to die down, and then eventually the waves kind of start to slow down, right? It says, Mark says, the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, okay? You know, how it, you know how it is, um, Wayne, you're a surfer, you know, you know all about this, right? The wind is going, and, and, and when the winds die down, there's still this grit. That's, that's probably some great surf, right? Because the, the, the waves are still going. There's still much momentum within the sea that it just continues crashing until eventually the momentum dissipates, right? But that's not how it went. Jesus said, peace, be still, and immediately the wind stops, and the sea is glass all around. Can you imagine how terrifying that must have been? To be there in that moment. Now, did you see Jesus call upon a power outside of himself to make that happen? Did you hear him say, in the name of so-and-so, I command this to happen? No. Did he say, uh, by the power of da-da-da-da, this? No, he says, simply, peace, be still. Boom. Immediately, a dead calm. Jesus did not, does not rely on some, source of exter- some external source of power. He is power. And Mark says that the disciples were filled with greater fear after the wind stopped than before the wind stopped. Isn't that amazing? Why is that? Well, because there was something more powerful in the boat than outside of it. And if that's true, if that story is true, do you understand what that means for you and me today? If Jesus' claims are true that he is power, he is righteousness, he is goodness, he is love, he is truth, he is life itself. If he is truly Lord of all creation, then no matter what shape your world is in today, you will find everything you need in the person of Jesus. He's not saying, this is the way, go work real hard, and if you work hard enough, then you'll find rest. No, he says, I am rest itself, and he gave us himself. That's the beauty. He is rest, and he gave us himself. We'll find everything we need in Jesus. But think about that story in Mark for just one more minute. You and I can probably understand uh, to some extent how the disciples are feeling at that moment. 
Um, the wind outside the boat is raging. The boat is tumbling around. It's shaking. They couldn't dump the water out fast enough. And Jesus is nowhere to be found. The storm is raging outside of the boat. And we look around. Where's Jesus? Where is he? And then you find him and you want, he's sleeping. He's sleeping down in the stern. Has anybody ever been in that situation where things have gotten so bad that the storms are raging so powerfully, the waves just keep coming and coming and coming, and they don't let up? You feel like there's no way you're going to make it out alive. There's just no way you're going to make it even one more day. And then you look around for God, and you're like, God, where are you? He's so distant. It's almost like he's sleeping. It's almost like he's sleeping when we're facing the the biggest uh, raging storm that we'd ever experienced. It's almost like he's asleep. If you've never been in that situation, if, that, if you're not in that situation today or you weren't in it yesterday, wait for tomorrow. Because the reality is it's coming for all of us. That's the reality. Every sing, we see this a lot here. Every single person in this room is one phone call away from your life getting turned upside down. Everybody gets, you never think you're going to get the phone call. You'll get the phone call. And that's why you have to see See what happens here next. Because this is going to happen to us, or it's happening, or it just happened to all of us, please, please stay with me and see what happens. Again, the disciples run down to Jesus, and they grab him, and they shake him, and they wake him up, and they say, Jesus, wake up! Why aren't you helping? Where, where, why are you sleeping here? Well, we're out suffering and scared. Don't you even care about us? Don't you even care if we perish? Don't you even care if we die? So what does Jesus say? Literally, actually, the word is, where is your faith? He says, where is your faith? He says, where is your faith? Don't, in other words, don't you trust me? Don't you know who I am? And don't you know how I love you? Because if you did, you would have been able to ride out this storm with some sense of peace, some sense of security, some sense of assurance. But man, when you're in that situation, that seems all but impossible, doesn't it? How in the world can we handle storms in our life with faith and with peace? Well, the answer is because we, we have something that the disciples didn't have yet. Um, we, have a, we have something that will enable us to ride out the storms of life with peace and security and assurance. And we find this reality right here in the story. Listen, the way that Mark tells his story about the, the disciples and Jesus in the boat is almost, please hear me, is almost identical to the language and the story of Jonah. All right, the, the, the way Mark describes the story about Jesus and the disciples in the boat is almost identical to the, to the story of Jonah. Both Jesus and Jonah are in a boat. Both boats get caught up in a storm. Both Jesus and Jonah were sleeping during the storm. Okay? In both stories, the sailors come to the sleeper, Jesus and Jonah, and they wake them up and say, do something, we're going to die. And then in both cases, God moves miraculously and the sea calms down. In an instant, and in both situations, the sailors are more terrified after the storm dies down than before because of the obvious supernatural intervention. Okay? They're almost identical, except for one detail. Okay? Because in the story of Jonah, Jonah tells the, story, tells the sailors basically, you've got to throw me overboard. You have to throw me overboard because if I die, you will live. If I perish, you'll survive. 
And so they throw, we know the story where they throw Jonah overboard, and then Jonah is swallowed by the fish. Then miraculously, three days later, Jonah is spit out alive onto the shore, and then he goes to Nineveh, where he preaches the message of repentance to the lost there in Nineveh, and they repent, and they're saved from the coming wrath of God. Okay? In Mark's story with Jesus and disciples, it's different because Jesus doesn't get thrown overboard. Or does he? (laughs) Or does he? In Matthew, Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Jonah is here. In other words, Jonah was but a shadow to who I am and what I'm about to do. Jonah is but a shadow of who I am. As one author put it, he said this, Jesus was saying, someday I'm going to calm all the storms, still all the waves. I'm going to destroy destruction, break brokenness, kill death. How, how can he do that? He can do it only because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly like Jonah into the ultimate storm, under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice, of what we owe for our wrongdoing. That storm wasn't calmed, not until it swept him away. Listen, if the sight of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, you will never say, God, don't you care? And if you know that he did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, what makes you think he would abandon you in the much smaller storms you're experiencing right now? If you let that penetrate to the very center of your being, you will know that he loves you. You will know he cares. And then you will have the power to handle anything in life with poise. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. He is life itself. He is power. He is grace. He is truth. He is righteousness. He is rest. He is the Lord of all creation. And that Lord of all creation loves you. And he proved it. He proved it by dying for you. Do you see now why John says, Jesus, in him is life, and this life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. We live in a world of despair and sorrow and pain and sin, complete and under darkness, separated from our God, separated from our creator, but Jesus, Jesus burst into our world. He punched a hole in the roof of our world, and he came in, and he cried out, I am the author of life. I have come that I might suffer for you, that I might die for you, that I might do what must be done for you because I love you and I desire you. I want a relationship with you. I want you to enjoy the freedom and the security and the peace that comes from living in glad submission to me. Verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about that statement for a minute, if you will. The darkness of sin and Satan himself through everything they had at Jesus. If you read the Bible, Jesus' ancestor line was threatened time after time after time after time. Kings were out trying to kill off babies, trying to get to Jesus when he was born. Satan, you know, was tempted Jesus in the wilderness, um, hoping that somehow, some way, he would abandon his mission. But when it comes down to it, the darkness of this world had no fighting chance, did it? Jesus, the light of the world, showed up burning brightly, and he will not be Do you believe that? Jesus, the light of the world, showed up burning brightly. He will not be quenched. In fact, what he does is he just keeps lighting up. He just keeps setting people ablaze. He just keeps lighting up person after person after person after person until one day people from every nation and tribe and tongue will be standing before the throne of God, overflowing with joy, singing and worshiping their king. One day, the manifest glory of God will be so bright that every ounce of darkness will be consumed and the sun in the sky will no longer be necessary because the very radiance of God himself will enable us to see. That's the reality. What what is darkness anyway? 
The absence of what? Absence of light. But the light has come and the light will not be quenched. You cannot stop it. You will not push it back. The darkness has, the darkness has not overcome it. And one day it will be gone forever. Every ounce of it will be consumed by the light of God. That's our future if we're a child of God. But it's not just our hope for the future. There, there's, there's, that reality has meaning for us today, here and now, doesn't it? Think about what this means for us today. Ann Voskamp wrote this. She said, If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust, I love this, I love this one. If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed in the brow, your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. If trust has to be earned, has he not earned your trust yet? He's already given us the incomprehensible. And this is what she's saying. In every situation that you walk through today, whatever you're walking through today, you can know that you know that you know that you know that you do not walk alone. And the one who does walk with it, through you or with you through that situation has proven himself. He is life. And he loves you. Um, you can walk confidently in the darkest of the situations because you see now that the darker the night gets, the brighter the light shines. And if you walk through that and you've held on to God, you'll see that that's the case. The darker the night gets, the, the brighter the light shines. One of my favorite stories is uh, Lord of the Rings. But if you've, if you've read the books, Lord of the Rings, or you've seen uh, the movie, the, uh, the trilogy, you might remember partway through when he, young Frodo and his friends, they're stopped, they're stopped by an elf sorceress named Galadriel, okay? And Galadriel interrupts the journey of Frodo and his friends, and she warns them about the difficulty that lay ahead, okay? Um, but when, she, when they're about to leave her and continue on their way, she doesn't send them away empty-handed, does she? Um, she gives Frodo... Uh, a vial, a little bottle, a little bottle of liquid that, that shines bright. If you guys remember the movie when he fights a big spider and that's what he's kind of waving around and stuff, right? This, it's, this, it's this little bottle of liquid that shines bright and its brightness actually increases the darker that the situation became, okay? This is what she says. She says, and you, ring bearer, she said, turning to Frodo, for you I have prepared this. She held up a small crystal vial. It glittered as she moved it and rays of white light sprang from her hand. In this vial, she said, is caught the light of Arendel's star. It will shine still brighter when night is about you. May it be a light to you in the dark places when all other lights go out. May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. And what you find out, if you're a nerd like me, is that the light of Arendel's star is originally taken, not just from this little pool, not from this little fountain, but it's originally taken from two trees, it's originally taken from two trees. And this light that was taken from these two trees was the light that Frodo literally clung to in his pocket. He would literally cling to it during his journey. Tolkien writes that when he would hold on to the lights in these you know, dangerous situations in his pocket, it would literally send surges of comfort and peace through his heart and through his mind. And when he would take it out, it would help him to see. It would open his eyes that he might see in the darkness. Um, the light, you know, the, again, I told you, the light grew brighter the darker the night became. Here's why this little story came to my mind this week as I was studying. There are a couple of trees that the Bible talks about, right? Specifically, there's a tree of life that's in the garden. And according to Genesis, if you eat of the tree of life uh, in the garden, you are said to have, be able to live forever. You could live forever. 
Well, as you guys know the story, after Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from the presence of God in the garden. And there was a sword that was said that would flash back and forth that would guard the entrance back into the garden. And the only way back into God's presence and to that tree of life was if somebody would actually go under that sword of divine justice. Jesus did that. Jesus did that for you and for me. And how did he do it? Well, he endured the second tree, the tree of death. The cross, the tree of death, he endured that, that we might eat from the tree of life. In fact, in some way you could say Jesus is the tree of life. John six fifty seven. he says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. But again, we can only eat of the tree of life because Jesus first drank from the cup of suffering from the tree of death. That's our light, our light that's come from two trees. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, In Christ, the God-forsaken sinner has a Savior who has taken on himself the full depths of human separation from God and overcome it. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I told you at the very, very beginning of our message today, in all 45 minutes of last week, everybody's trying to figure out what the Logos is. Everybody's looking for an answer to those questions of origin and meaning and morality and destiny. Everybody is looking for life and light. Um, every one of you in here are doing the same. Some of you have found that in Jesus. Some of you haven't. That's the reality. Some of you might think that you have, but you're still running after things. Jesus isn't your Lord. Jesus isn't your Savior. You're still trusting other things to be your Lord and Savior. Um, but everybody in this room and on this planet is groping around for something, groping around in the dark, whether it's right living, maybe it's morality. I'm going to trust in myself to get my way to God. That's, you're your own Lord. You're your own Savior. Or sex, or, or relationships, or your profession, or your family. Um, something, you're looking to something to give your life meaning to bring you salvation. Everybody in this room, everybody on this planet is groping around in the dark looking for some type of light. Just to validate my point, can I actually read you something? Um, after we put our kids down in bed most nights lately over the last few weeks, I, uh, I have, I think I just really miss music a lot. And so I've been taking my guitar into the room and I've just been playing some music for my kids. And, you know, it's Winnie, who's one, and then Israel's five. So I usually will start with, you know, Winnie. I'll play a couple like Itsy Bitsy and Mary Had a Little Lamb. But for my own sanity and enjoyment, I'll actually play a couple songs that I enjoy playing. And so I've been playing, I've been listening to a lot of uh, a band called Coldplay lately. Uh, and so I've been playing them some Coldplay songs. And I, I just, I love their music, and I've never really, kind of really listened to their words. And as I'm singing through some of these songs, I'm starting to pick up on some of the some themes in their lyrics. Uh, and I'm not, please hear me, I'm not trying to pick on Coldplay. I love Coldplay. Um, they're just a, they're a great band, but th- these are some of the lyrics that I read. I'd like to just read you a few lines from different songs. It, again, I'm not trying to pick on them, but again, their lyrics are just rife with despair. They're just, they're just full of, like, this longing for answers and salvation and something for, for, for God. When it comes down to it, let me read you a few lines from just a few different songs. So what they write. I used to rule the world. Seas would rise when I gave the word. Now in the morning, I sweep alone. I sweep the streets that I used to own. I used to roll the dice and feel the fear in my enemy's eyes. And I'd listen as the crowd would sing, Now the old king is dead. Long live the king. Listen. But one minute I held the key, and next the walls were closed on me. And I discovered that my castle stand upon pillars of salt and pillars of sand. And, and he goes on, for some reason I can't explain, but I know St. Peter won't call my name. Never an honest word, but that was when I ruled the world. Do you hear what he's saying? Like I, had, I had everything. I ruled the world. I had everything. 
People, I had, my, my, my enemies feared me. My, my, I had the, the acclaim, everything. And then I look around me. I know I have the key in my hand to everything that, 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 that's around. But then it all falls apart. It was all just on pillars of salt, pillars of sand. And he said, you know, for whatever reason, I just can't explain it, but I know salvation isn't there. And another, some search for gold, some for a dragon to slay. Heaven, we hope, is just up the road. Show me the way, Lord, because I'm about to explode. Last one. Again, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to pick on him, but this is actually one of my favorite songs. I love this. But um, he, says, he says this. He said, when you try your best, but you don't succeed. And when you get what you want, but not what you need. When you feel so tired, but you just can't sleep, you're stuck in reverse. And the tears come streaming down your face. And when you lose something, you can't replace. When you love someone, but it just goes to waste, could it be worse? And then he says, lights will guide you home and ignite your bones. And then he says, and I will try to fix you. Okay? Um, I think it's really fascinating, by the way, that Coldplay even uses the light metaphor here. But do you see what he's saying in that song? He's saying, he said, when you try as hard as you possibly can, when you give it everything you have, but it still fails, when, when, when the tears just won't stop streaming down your face and you've lost everything, and even the love that you feel for somebody, even that, you know, has not uh, added up. It's still not enough. And that goes to waste. When things, he says, when things couldn't possibly get worse, he says, there will be a light to guide you home. There will be light to ignite your bones. I believe he's saying, I'll be that light. I'll try to fix you. Again, the interpretation of the lyrics do not lie with the person reading the lyrics. The interpretation lies with the author. I could be way off in way, what he intended with the song. I'm just telling you from my reading, this is what I got. It, it sounds like if you look at the whole song, it sounds like he's talking to a girl or to his spouse, Gwyneth Paltrow, um, right? Uh, it's, that's what it sounds like. But he says, when everything falls apart and, and the tears are just streaming down my face, I'll fix you. Any spouse want to speak into how that's going to go? <laughs> not well. Your spouse, your relationship, whatever, cannot be your life and your light. You know that. Number one, they're going to fail. Number two, it's unreasonable for you to place that expectation on them. If you're looking to your spouse to fulfill you in that way, to be your life and your light, your marriage is going to wallow in a pit of frustration and, and, and you know, unfulfilled expectations. That's, that's the reality that you'll face. Your spouse, your work, your money, your sex, your right living, nothing else will be able to overcome the darkness all the time Every time, every other light in this world will eventually go out, except Christ. That's the reality. Every other light in this world will go out except Jesus. He is the light of the world, and the darkness has not overcome him. Let me close with this. Timothy Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he writes this. This this is a little long, but will you please do everything you can? Get rid of distractions. Please focus in on what he's saying here. This is a dark world. There are many ways that we can keep that darkness at bay, but we cannot do it forever. Eventually, the lights of our lives, love, health, home, work, will begin to go out. And when that happens, we will need something more than what our own understanding, competence, and power can give us. In Matthew 4.16, we're told that in the birth of Jesus, the people walking in the darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. But, you may say, if Jesus is the light of the world, why, when he came into the world, did he not do something about the suffering and the darkness? The poor are still downtrodden. There are still wars and rumors of wars. Why didn't he stop it all? Why? It's because the evil and the darkness of this world comes to a great degree from within us. Do you see what would have happened at Jesus' first coming to earth if he'd come with a sword in his hand and a power to destroy all sources of suffering and evil? It would have meant there would be no human beings left. 
If you don't think that's fair, I'd argue that you don't know your own capabilities, your own heart. But Jesus did not come to earth the first time to bring justice, but rather to bear it. He came not with a sword in his hands, but with nails through his hands. Christian teaching for centuries has been this, that Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment our sins deserve so that someday he can return to earth to end evil without destroying us all. Jesus did not come back the first time with a political program to cast off the Roman oppression, as good as that may have been. He did not want to do merely the thing that we human beings can and must do, oppose and prevent the latest form of evil. No, he had a more radical program. He was born into the world and died on the cross and rose from the dead to begin that program. His death and resurrection created a people in the world who now have a unique and powerful ability to to diminish the evil in their hearts as well as a mandate to oppose and endure without flagging the evil they find in their communities and society. It was all because the Son of God entered into human suffering to turn evil on its head and eventually end evil, sin, suffering, and death itself for good. The Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world. If you know you are in his love and that nothing can snatch you out of his hand and that he is taking you to God's house and God's future, then he can be a light for you in dark places when all other lights go out. His love for you now and this infallible hope for the future are indeed a light in the darkness by which we can find our way. Amen? In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray, Lord, that, um, that you would uh, shine your light. I mean, show us who you are, God, that, that your light would shine in every single one of our hearts. Um, Lord, for some of us, uh, we have done everything we can to um, suppress that light, Lord, that we we've know you, and we've, um, but, but the things of this world are choking out some of that. It's, 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 uh, the light has grown dim. It's not that you've grown dim. It's just that we put a lot of things in the way. And God, I just pray that if there's anything in each one of our hearts, God, that is keeping us either from greater intimacy with you or uh, being a, a better witness to your light, God, I pray that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would draw us uh, ever closer to you and that we might um, be, a, a, again, a greater witness for you, Lord. We love you. We pray, Lord, that your light would shine bright in this church. Please, God, may, we be, may this, this church be a beacon to this community. As Rich was saying, God, just a place where people know that they can come and, and find a love and care and support. And again, all in the name of Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.